Uh, Lord, we just read that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. That is the gospel preached. Lord, would you uh, attend this preached Word uh, by your Spirit? Lord, we'd be in big trouble if we were just, you know, an audience um, taking in a bunch of wordsmithing. Um, We need the Spirit. We need the Spirit to help our hearts, which kind of naturally are resistant, naturally are, are darkened, naturally um, are hardened. So you alone, Lord, um, can illuminate the heart, soften it, uh, subdue it to yourself for your glory and for our good. So would you do that this morning um, for the glory of your name, for the greatness of Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Mark Twain once said that a man who holds a cat by the tail learns something that he can learn in no other way. You know, and, and true enough, right? I mean, there's, there's theory, and then there's practice. You know, I, I might have a theory that a ponytail will make me look younger, but I promise you if I put it into practice, that will be kind of a different story, right? And you know, the theory-practice thing, I think it's particularly interesting when it comes to the church. And you know, before I say anything else about it, I, I always want to recognize that there are some of us, there's always some among us for whom being part of a church has been, you know, a particularly painful thing. Um, you know, and, and if that's your experience, I always just want to say, I'm so glad you're here. And I hope, you know, this is a place you can rest and enjoy, rest and enjoy God's grace in this community because you've known, you know, you've actually gone from the theoretical to the practice and it's been difficult. But, you know, all the same, you know, there are many for whom really being connected to a church has never gone beyond theory. Uh, in fact, I'd venture to say there are very few people that I've met who don't have a working theory of the church. You know, I can't tell you how many times people ask me what I do, and, you know, um, you have to admit that you're a pastor, which is not easy. And, uh, you know, and very often there's theories about the church, you know, how it should work how it doesn't work, how it should change, how it should never change, you know, how it should cease to exist, how there should be more of them, less of them, whatever. But it's the rarer person, I think, who who decides, you know, I'm done with the theorizing. I'm going to check it out. I'm not only going to check it out, I'm going to be a part of it. Uh, I'm grabbing the cat by the tail. Now, last week, you know, we admitted, actually admitted new members to this church. And if you saw that, I really want you to know that what you witnessed wasn't merely a bit of, you know, Presbyterian procedural administrative business. Um, what, What you witnessed, what those people did, and what many of you have done, I want you to know, is is among the most radical, countercultural, seditious things they will ever do in their life. Because becoming a member of a church is actually nearly the opposite of how we conventionally think about membership, right? Uh, it, is, it is not attaching yourself to a community of people who are just like you with shared interests, shared goals, and all the rest. It's, it's not like that. It's not like joining the National Hamster Breeders Association, you know, or the Rock and Mineral Club. It is not to be joined to a people like you, that you've chosen for yourself, it is actually to be joined to a whole lot of people who aren't like you that Jesus chooses for you. 
in such a way that you actually effectively and objectively form a relation that's deeper, if we believe what the Bible has to say about it, than even your own flesh and blood, right? So maybe in addition, you know, to, to the membership vows, we need to, you know, kind of say buckle up, you know, fasten your seatbelts. Here's a crash helmet. Here's a flare gun because you, you're going to be in for a bumpy ride because this is a community like no other. You know, that's why the essence of the membership vows have, have a lot more to do with the faithfulness of Jesus than with our own faithfulness because left to ourselves, you know, there's just no way we could hold it together and move forward, you know, and I just want to say have mercy. And, and I get into all that to kind of continue to try to get our heads around what's going on in the church in Rome. Now, you know, just on the face of it to our 21st century ears, it seems great. You know, a church with both Jews and Gentiles together. Isn't it wonderful? You know, I can see our denominational missions agency magazine, you know, publishing their feature article on that right now, you know. But when you, when you look at it, you've got to say, not so fast. You know, even, even as it is objectively a wonderful thing that the gospel could actually do that and create that kind of fellowship, it is also deeply, deeply challenging. What, what looks delightful in, in theory is actually quite difficult in practice. Years ago, I read an article. It was around the time they were forming the European Union. And, and, and the article basically pondered this question. Is, is there such a thing as a European identity? Like, before you think of yourself as a Swede or a Spaniard, or a German, or a Serbian, do you first think of yourself as European? And the article, you know, pondered that question, and it ended with the writer putting that question to this little old man in a small Italian village, and he, he thought about it for a second, and he said, well, let me just put it this way. Everybody in this village hates everybody in the next village. So, you know, it's intense enough to get two groups which had been at odds for millennia in the same building, but more challenging still with what's going on in, this, in Romans is that the Gentiles seem to be responding to the gospel more than God's covenant people. Despite the massive advantages Paul has just cataloged in chapter 9 in, in God's covenant people being given the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the law and the worship and the promises. And yet, Paul says the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. Now, I don't want to brush past that too quickly because that is a case of major understatement. You know, you can imagine a Roman church member who grew up in a faithful Jewish home reading, the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness? Really? That's how you're going to put it, Paul? Um, it would be like me summing up my college years by saying, you know, those were the years in which I did not pursue righteousness. You know, there was a lot more going on than that, right? So you can imagine the Jewish believers in Rome going, look, I know these people. Gen generations of my family have grown up around these people my whole life. I've been watching them hitting up the brothels, passed out drunk in the alley, hauling their nasty meat, you know, to go make sacrifice to Jupiter in the temple. And now you're telling me that even though they never lifted a finger to follow God's law, and just because they say they have faith in Jesus, we're supposed to be on equal standing before God? 
And Paul's answer is actually unequivocal, and it is absolutely. That's exactly what I'm saying. The fact that the Gentiles have been saved and included as full members of the household of God through Jesus Christ is not at odds with how God has always saved and reconciled the people to himself. It is wholly consistent with how he has always done that. Salvation has always been by faith, and it has never come by way of obedience to the law. So Paul kind of digs into this. He compares what's happened among the Gentiles in God's covenant people in verses 30 and 31 so that, so that we can see this more clearly. He contrasts the Gentile embrace of a righteousness that is by faith, even though they didn't pursue righteousness, with the effort of Israel who pursued what he calls a law of righteousness but had not attained it. Now, just to get at that a little more sharply, you know, I want to notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say that the unpursued righteous, righteousness of the Gentiles became righteousness while the pursued righteousness of the Jews did not. He, he says instead that the Gentiles didn't pursue righteousness and received it while Israel pursued a law of righteousness and didn't. What he's saying is no one was pursuing righteousness. One group wasn't pursuing it. The other one was pursuing it by what God, uh, Paul calls a law of righteousness, which turns out to be no righteousness at all. And he explains that what that means in the next couple of verses. He says, pursuing a law of righteousness for salvation, it turns out, is the very opposite of faith. Because it is to attempt to attain righteousness, Paul says, as if it were based on the works of the law. As if. You know, that's the irony. You feel like you're going after righteousness, but actual righteousness isn't being pursued, isn't being attained, even as personal achievement is. So, so, so long as you strive to wrangle a righteousness for yourself, you'll never be able to receive it from a gracious and saving God. Now, that's not to say that the drive isn't powerful. We've all got this drive to secure a righteousness by our own effort, and it's powerful, it's instinctive, I think it's very much embedded in who we are, and it is, at the very same time, it's the thing that makes you stumble because you're imagining you're achieving something when you're actually closing yourself off to the grace of God. I, I had a bitter experience a few years ago uh, with stumbling. It was in a hotel parking lot in Dallas. I just made this kind of long drive from South Texas where I lived, and, you know, I was eager to get my warm cookie and, you know, to, to uh, chill out with some ESPN uh, sports center in my room, and I had all that in my head. I'm a little dazed from the drive. I've got the hotel lobby in my sights, and, and then, like, all of a sudden, I was in a pile, you know, on the ground with my carry-on on top of me and ripped clothes and I'd scrape myself and, you know, and of course there were some people there witnessing this and it was entertaining to them and, well, you know, it turns out this, you know, I wasn't looking where I was going. My toe caught this little rise in the sidewalk and, and I stumbled, you know, I stumbled over the stumbling stone. And, you know, I thought about that this week because that's kind of emblematic, right, uh, of what I think Paul is scratching at here, this you know, this drive toward what we imagine will be our rest and our reward, you know, the warm cookie we're all going after, 
you know, without being sensible to conditions, without being, you know, aware that I'm actually kind of dazed from the long drive. Maybe I need to gather myself and, and you know, um, and, and just focused on the, you know, getting to where I'm going without looking around. And that's the bitter irony in Rome. That as God's people are trying very hard to secure a righteousness by their own striving, it actually becomes their stumbling. While those who seem to care least about it end up holy and blameless in his sight. Because they've come into possession not of their just deserts, but of righteousness by grace through faith. Now, now I want to say that'll mess with your categories. You know, and yet... It's very often the case that the people who aren't too concerned with righteousness, people who struggle with it, once they actually hear of who God is, once they're able to get a little bit honest about who they are and consider what it might mean to be in relationship with Him, you know, there's, there's an advantage in that, of seeing that God is holy and, and I'm actually hollow. You know, they apprehend the reality of who they are and who the living God is, and it it produces, you know, by God's grace, it produces repentance and faith. You cry out. You just know, I can't look to myself. I'm too much of a mess. Now, on the other hand, it can be the case that those who are achievers, you know, who navigate the world with some success, who've attained the rewards of life with degrees and career and money and, and morality, you know, the people who've got like the, you know, the pictures on the beach with their family and everybody's wearing the matching clothes, you know, those people. It's not a big leap to begin to imagine and become convinced that, it, that it's my work that has secured me the good things in life. And, and, and then, you know, what, what do I need with, with God? Maybe a co-pilot. From that posture, it's not even too far a leap to begin to imagine that since I've paid out in my rigor and my religiosity, God owes me. He owes me the rewards of salvation and the good life. You know, that's why the notion that one could attain a righteousness they didn't even pursue for many in the church, you know, is not only incomprehensible, it's offensive. It's why when we imagine that we've earned a little righteousness of our own, we get repelled by the idea that, you know, for example, a notorious criminal could come to faith and be saved. It's why people who imagine that they've attained a righteousness by works are very often busy retrofitting the gospel, you know, with some rules. Because they can't loosen their grip on the idea that you've got to earn your righteousness. You know, maybe you got in by grace, but you're staying in by law, right? And that, Paul says, is, is why we stumble. And he actually expands it to say it's why we stumble over Jesus, because faith in Him demands not just relying on Him, it actually demands a repudiation of self-righteousness so that we secure righteousness in the Savior alone. You know, the great 18th century revival preacher George Whitfield contended with this pretty intensely in his ministry when he came to the new world and, and began preaching. Um, you know, and of course, who's in his audience? The, the sons and the daughters the grandsons and the granddaughters of the Puritans. You know, maybe, maybe the most, among the most re rigorously religious people who've ever walked the planet. And, you know, and so he begins to preach, and their posture initially to him is like, oh, the gospel? 
like the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yeah, we've got that. We've got the Bible memorized. We are by lineage and by practice and by tradition. We are by definition a righteous people. And, And to that, you know, Whitfield said something, I think, that church historians still acknowledge set off a revival that may be still bearing fruit. And it, essentially it was this, clearly your moral, upright, biblically well-versed people. I'm not even sure if I were to examine your life that I could find a sin to get you to repent of. Except for this, you need to repent of your righteousness. You need to repent of this deadly notion that because of who you are or what you do or what you have achieved, that in some way you have merited God's favor and He now owes you. Repent of your righteousness, and then you will be able to receive a real righteousness from Jesus, true standing before God. Jesus will either be the foundation upon which you stand for your whole life as the forgiver of sin or the giver of righteousness, or He will be the cause of your falling. Now, in the midst of all this, we're still wrestling with this thorny question that Paul won't dispense with, which is, okay, if salvation comes by way of God's sovereign will, how can anyone be held responsible for their unbelief? And, and, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, that, on this, but I, I just want to quickly dispense with the idea that Paul is contradicting himself, okay? Um, so, so then how are we supposed to think about it? Um, first of all, it's critical to accept that human beings cannot fully comprehend the mind of God. That, that, is, that is actually central to Paul's argument. He put it earlier this way, will that which is molded say to its molder, why did you make me this way? And, and that, I want you to know, is not a cop-out. It's not intellectual laziness. It is to embrace probably one of the most important life-giving truths that any of us could embrace here, and that is simply that there is a God and I am not He. But at the same time, Paul doesn't move on and and just make that point and, you know, dismiss this issue of sovereignty and responsibility. He delves into it. He connects the concepts and acknowledges that actually they do stand in relationship to to each other in an important way. And, and, you know, in such a way that uh, they appear to be contradicting, but they're not. It's what philosophers call an antinomy. Um, It's like how light can behave as particles sometimes and other times as waves. It's like how physicists are beginning to understand that there's some kind of relationship between time and space, and no one has totally figured that out, but, it's, but both are true at the same time. There are apparent contradictions, but not real contradictions. So when the Scripture posits the question, you know, is God sovereign over all? And when it posits the question, are people fully responsible for their actions? The answer is Yes. Yes to both. Yes to it all. Search the Bible and you'll never find a place where God's plan has been sovereignly executed in such a way that people are off the hook for their, for their actions. Neither will you find the actions of people being carried out independent of God's sovereign will. So, you know, even as there's no deeper truth to contemplate than that, you know, Paul doesn't treat this as the stuff of kind of cold, abstract, intellectual, physics lab, philosophizing. He doesn't look at people clinging to their own efforts for salvation 
and say, well, I've made an empirical observation. Uh, you have stumbled over Jesus. Uh, your foolish decisions and God's decree have made it so, and it serves you right. I can remember wrestling with this doctrine when I was in college, and I met some people who, um, you know, affirm the sovereignty of God very strongly, and, you know, I was kind of trying to figure it out, and I just remember at the time going, you know, I don't know what I believe, but those dudes are jerks. They're just cold-hearted. And so it's so important for us to see that actually these doctrines don't produce cold-heartedness, but the very next words that flow from Paul's pen are about his heart and his prayer. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Their salvation's my, heart my heart's desire. I bring this to the Lord in prayer all the time. And that in itself is incredibly instructive, I think especially for folks like me and maybe you, who are part of a, you know, a Christian tradition, not exactly famous, you know, for its heartfelt warmth and charitable disposition towards those who are struggling. So, you know, please see this, that even as we're, we're coming off this robust exposition of the sovereignty of God and salvation, it is powerfully linked with a softened heart, with heartfelt love and sympathy for those who are stumbling, who don't yet know the grace of God, but a longing that they would. The same person who's just given this uncompromising exposition of the sovereignty of God is at the same time deeply moved in the heart and longs that, they would, that, that his people would receive the gospel. It's emotional, but it's not only that, it is particularly painful for Paul. He says, you know, God's covenant people, what, what makes this really hard is they've got a zeal for God. The zeal for God's a good thing. You know, would that be said of more of us? Now, you know, Paul knew a little something about zeal. He knew about an intense desire to see that God was honored and pleased and rightly served, not only personally, but in the community. And of course, famously, he went to pretty extreme lengths to ensure that that was happening. You know, to the point where he became murderous. And because of that, he also knew something else about zeal, that zeal's not enough. It, it's, you know, despite what every Disney movie ever told you, it's just not enough to pursue your passions and follow your heart. For the, simply reason that, for the simple reason that your passions and your heart might be completely misguided. You know, the Taliban are really zealous. Paul is recognizing the goodness of a zeal for God, but he is lamenting that it is a zeal without knowledge. And that is heartbreaking and ultimately destructive. He defines what it means to have a zeal without knowledge in verse 3. He says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, not submitting to God's righteousness. Zeal without knowledge looks on the surface to be really pious, you know, because it's being done in the name of God. But in fact, Paul says, you know, when you look under the service, there's a stubborn refusal to serve the Lord. It's an indication that there's a failure to reckon with some really important facts. Number one, Jesus has come. And number two, the Bible said he would. Oh, I just closed my notes. The zeal, this zeal, in other words, this passion for establishing a righteousness of one's own 
has the effect of shutting out attention and to what God has said about how you get righteous. It's, you know, it's not like God got this law thing going and then decided, you know what, the law thing isn't working as well as I thought, I'm going to send Jesus. So, you know, Paul never says Jesus Christ is a great alternative to the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. He says instead that Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The, the law, in other words, isn't finished, it's been fulfilled. That is to say that Jesus is the destination to which the law takes you. He's the, he is real righteousness. He's the only way to be reconciled. It's his obedience to God, not yours, that gets you right with God. So Christ has come not just as inspiration, but as the end of the law. He neither breaks the law, nor does he burden people with it, but he fulfills it for us so that his obedience becomes ours by faith. And Paul bolts that down further by showing that the Scripture does not, nor has it ever, taught that the law is a way of salvation. And to make the point, Paul quotes Moses twice, the great lawgiver. You know, to this day, you go to a courthouse, and if there's statues, you know, in the courthouse, you're probably going to see a statue of Moses, because he represents the law. But here, Paul makes a beeline to Moses and goes, let's look at what Moses says about the law. So he quotes from Leviticus 18, where Moses explains how the law works, and he says that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, which is not saying, you know, follow the law and you'll be saved. It is to say that, you know, if anyone were able to keep the law perfectly, you would receive eternal life, but in fact, it's impossible. You can't live that way. More is required, and that becomes even more clear in the second quotation from Deuteronomy 30. And this is, you know, maybe later today, go and read Deuteronomy 30. It's really rich and it's instructive. It's the place where Moses expounds the blessings and the curses of the law, you know, the, the blessings of obeying it, the curses and punishments that come from disobeying it. It sort of sets up like, do the law and you'll be blessed, break the law and you'll be cursed. And it all seems like pretty zero-sum black and white stuff until you get to verse 6 which is not about the consequences of what comes by what we may or may not do. It is about the grace of what the Lord alone can do. And it's really remarkable. In the midst of all that stuff about the law, Moses tells God's people this, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live as impossible as perfect law-keeping will be for anyone, actually loving the Lord with all your heart and soul will not be impossible because the Lord does the work, is what Moses is getting at. And so he quotes, and you know, you don't have to climb into the heavens or cross the oceans to pull this off, but becoming truly righteous in his sight won't rest on your Herculean efforts of scaling your way up into God's presence, nor will it come by, you know, becoming a martyr and suffering to the point of death in a vain attempt to atone for your sins. It won't come by feats of strength. It will come by faith, by relying in, on and trusting in the Lord who Paul says, or Moses says circumcises your hearts. That is to say, sets you apart for himself, reveals himself as the great covenant keeper, 
doesn't crush you with covenant demands, but keeps covenant for you. God Himself will do everything needed for salvation because He will ensure, remarkably, that the Word will come near. And in fact, that Word has come near. It must be known and understood. Paul says you must confess it with the mouth. You must believe it in your heart. You know? so, so what is this word that Moses is promising that will come near? Well, Paul tells us two things about it. First, he says the word is a person. And secondly, the word is powerful, powerful to save. God sent the word in the person of Jesus Christ, not demanding again that we make our way to heaven, but Jesus came down from it. And having come near, he doesn't crush us with death as a punishment for our sins, but actually goes to his own death for us and our sins as lawbreakers. So that what saves, saves us is repentance of our sins and faith in Jesus, confessing him with our mouth, believing him in, in, in your heart. That, Paul wants us to know, is zeal with knowledge. Trusting in the Word made flesh who has come near as anyone could ever come. Trusting in Jesus Christ by faith for your righteousness, founding your life on Him, and then obeying the law with gratitude. And Paul wants us to know with some depth of what it means to put your faith in Him. And, and, you know, first of all, it's easy to miss it, but Paul says this, Jesus is Lord, confessing Him as Lord. The word that he uses here is synonymous with the word in the Old Testament for Yahweh. It's the same word that when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, they would use for God's personal name. And Paul says, that's who we're talking about. You know, and let's not forget that when Paul addressed this letter, the address was Rome. You know, we're to suggest that anyone other than Caesar being Lord, you know, it's off with your head. So that title speaks to the supreme power of Jesus his unique ability to accomplish whatever he sets out to accomplish. Practically the first thing you might remember, I mean, it's been a little while now, but practically the first thing said about the gospel in the letter to the Romans had to do with its power. In chapter 1, Paul calls it the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power of salvation, God's power being exerted, not resting with you, but being exerted through Jesus Christ, the word come near, to have real righteousness, real life. Paul says, believe it with your heart. Which, which does not mean getting emotional. It does not even mean putting an end to all questions or saying, you know, I'm never going to struggle anymore. What it does mean is it says the days of trying to make a life for myself and, and you know, singing for my own supper, to, you know, turning that over to anyone other than Jesus are graciously over. So however strong or however weak my faith may be, it means looking to Jesus as my life and my righteousness. It means transferring trust from self to Savior, from my efforts to His. It means repenting of my righteousness. Right? We're all believers in something. We're all, we're all putting our faith in something. But if you put your faith in Jesus, Paul says, you'll never regret it. And the great relief is we can get off the hamster wheel. You, know, you can put an end to the striving and the angst and the pride on the one hand and the pain of, on the other of trying to spin all the plates of keeping your life together and quieting the conscience and stealing significance. And simply, Paul says, actually, the best thing you can do 
is the promise that God expressed in Joel 2. It's to know that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Calling out to the Lord for salvation is actually not only a thing we need to do, it's, it's, it's the only thing you can do. Because God does the saving. Now from that ground of God's sovereignty and salvation comes zeal, uh, but, but directed towards evangelism. In verse 14, Paul asks in all kinds of ways basically the same thing. How is it that people are going to cry out to God, a God they've never heard of? You know, you don't hear the gospel mystically. You don't discover it internally. You won't find it instinctively. It's got to be proclaimed. And it's got to be proclaimed by God's people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. The other day we went on a hike, you know, one of these beautiful hikes up in, around Taos in the glory that is northern New Mexico. And you know what I became for the next week? An evangelist. You've got to go. Why? Because it was beautiful. And I experienced it. And I heard the stream. And I smelled the air. And I immersed myself in it. And I had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And I became an evangelist. You've got to go. Paul is talking about much bigger things here. In fact, he wonders out loud how belief in the gospel is even possible apart from preaching. And, you know, I mean, I'm preaching right now. I do this professionally. Um, but I promise you, uh, you know, what, no one thinks of sermons as more essential to the Christian life than me. I think they're very important. But, but, but when Paul talks about preaching here, he's not just talking about sermons. Uh, and again, you know, I can bend your ear all day about the value of coming to church and inviting people to church. But Paul is saying not only do you need to get to the message, but we've got to get the message to the people. Because after all, you know, he asks, how can they preach unless they're sent? He's talking about heralding the good news. He's talking about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, and you've got to have some of this. My life has changed, and and I love you, and I want your life to change, you know, and heralds weren't just behind pulpits delivering sermons. They were out on the streets. They were standing on the corners like newsies, shouting out the headlines of what has happened. That's how the gospel gets out, through Jesus' sent ones through the authoritative apostolic witness, which is the Bible, but also as those who've received it and believed it, missionaries, preachers, every Christian who's tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So whether you're called, you know, to go overseas or to climb into a pulpit or to roll your chair two cubicles over, it is not doing some kind of chore but it is to share as those who have been changed, who have experienced the exhilarating relief of having the law lifted from our lives and our consciences, having our sins forgiven, who've been given life and life abundant, not because we've attained it for ourselves, but because the word has come near. And in sharing that news, Paul says, your feet become beautiful because Jesus has come near, fulfilling the law, forgiving our sins, giving us a righteousness, not our own. Let's pray. Lord, we could expound on it more, but it's worth pondering now that when we contemplate what it means that the word has come near, Lord, we couple that with your promise that you spoke right before you ascended to saying that you're with us.
even to the end of the age. And so, Lord, we are grateful to know that even as we are members of the church, even as we are members of one another, one of us is Jesus. And, Lord, you are the Lord. You are mighty to save. Thank you for circumcising our hearts. Thank you for relieving us of our burdens. Thank you for freeing the conscience and the life so that we can now live as God's free people, relieved of the burden, relishing the gospel. Lord, may we taste of it more deeply as we prepare to come to this table. In Jesus' name, amen.